get your car washed because it's probably dirty right now. Whether it's you know washing all the germs out, you want to get obviously the germs out of your car, but also you want it to look really nice. Go to Tommy's Express Car Wash. It's wash, rinse, repeat with Tommy's. And guess what? They have an app. It's the Tommy Club app. So download it. I know you have a smartphone, so you're going to be able to download apps. You don't have a flip phone if you're listening to this podcast. I'm just assuming that. And if you do, more power to you. But if you do, then you're missing out on this great deal. Because if you download the Tommy Club app today, you're going to enjoy endless washing for one low price. Endless washing for one low price at Tommy's Express Car Wash. That's unlimited car washes, unlimited clean, shiny, and dry. Unlimited use of exclusive app lane at Tommy's. Unlimited access to all the Tommy's locations. And there are a lot of them. Unlimited guest service. Most importantly, unlimited happiness. That's a Tommy's Express Car Wash. We got a lot of different things coming at you today, okay? And I'm just sensing a little bit of a lull right now. That. You don't got time for that. All right? Let's go. Break it. Break it. Let it cross. Woo! Ladies and gentlemen, can I please have your attention? I've just been handed an urgent and horrifying news story. And I need all of you to stop what you're doing and listen. You're listening to Rock Chalk Sports Talk with Derek Johnson on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. What's up? Welcome into another edition of Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. I'm Derek Johnson. We'll be joined by Matt Tate of the Lawrence Journal World coming up in about 30 minutes from right now. Kevin Flaherty of 24-7 Sports joins us at 440 to talk Big 12 football. We'll also let you listen in to what Lance Leipold had to say. He had his weekly press conference today here on Rock Chalk Sports Talk throughout the show. Wild Monday night football game last night with the Raiders and the Ravens. It was kind of a sleepy game early. It wasn't a bad game. I mean, it was back and forth. It was close, but... You know, it felt like the score was stuck on 14-10, 17-10 for about a quarter and a half there. And then the fourth quarter, it just absolutely heated up. You had the two teams just kind of trading touchdowns. You eventually go into overtime. And I don't even know how to describe the spectacle that was overtime in this game when you had the Raiders seemingly win the game, storm the field. They didn't win the game. They get back out there. They get stuffed at the goal line, the false start, throw an interception in the end zone. Ravens fumble the ball back the other way. They go out to kick a field goal. They get a false start to move them back. Then they go for it on a third and down or maybe second down, and and they just chuck it up deep. Ravens were blitzing every play. (laughs) The receiver gets wide open. Zay Jones, who I don't think to that point had a catch in the game. I mean, he was, you know, behind on the depth chart. Guys like Brian Edwards, Hunter Renfro, Henry Ruggs, Darren Waller in terms of just targets, looking at the tight end as well, and he makes the game-winning catch. It was absolutely unbelievable. Derek Carr looked really good in that game for the Raiders last night. And, you know, there's a part of me, because you can look at this from the AFC West perspective, and the entire Western divisions won every game in week one, AFC and NFC. Every team in the NFC West is 1-0. Every team in the AFC West is 1-0. You could have predicted it with the Chiefs. You could have predicted it with the Chargers. I mean, Broncos were playing the Giants, so it's not like they were, you know, playing a juggernaut. But... The Raiders were four-point underdogs to the Ravens, and yet everybody in the Western Divisions wins. Everybody in the AFC West wins. So what does this mean? Well, I think from the NFC West, as I said yesterday, I I, I kind of did the overreaction that, you know, they're going to get all three wild cards. Will that probably happen? Probably not. But could they get two of the the three wild cards? Yeah, that's, that's very much in play. So you could have three playoff teams from that division. I'm not willing to go that far with the AFC West, even despite the strong early performances I don't think the Broncos are going to keep this up, and the Raiders, to me, just feel like another, you know, they'll be in contention for the playoffs. They'll be around that 8-9, and 9-8 type of season. They were 8-8 eight and eight a season ago. That's how I feel with this. And just because Derek Carr had a really good game, I'm not going to get all excited over the fact, and I don't even know, I wouldn't actually get excited about this, but worked up over the fact that Derek Carr is having like a breakout season now. Because we've seen this from Derek Carr. 
We've seen him every year. He's good for a couple of these outbursts where it looks like, man, should we be considering Derek Carr more seriously? You see on the debate shows this morning, like, is Derek Carr an elite quarterback? I'll save you the short answer. No, that's just, you know, talk that is being mustered up to try to bring ratings, and it's so incredibly stupid. Derek Carr's good for a couple of these, right? You had the game in Kansas City last year where Derek Carr went into Arrowhead and he was able to get the victory and, and have a really good game. He's good for a couple of those every year. I mean, you beat the Saints last year on Monday Night Football. The Raiders did this last year. This is just kind of what they do. And, I mean, that's going to be a tough place to play in Vegas' first opening game of the season there. Don't get me wrong. I think the Raiders are good. They can beat any team on a given night. We saw that last year when they did go into Arrowhead and beat Kansas City. But the difference between what Derek Carr does and, I don't know, like a Dak Prescott is that Dak Prescott's doing that every week. And that's why Dak Prescott is seen as, you know, a consensus top 10 quarterback or maybe a, I don't know, the number five, number six, seven quarterback in the NFL, maybe higher, maybe lower. I don't know, depending where you look at it. With Derek Carr, we don't have those conversations. You know, you look at like QBR, you look at completion percentage and stuff, and and he's a guy that looks pretty good statistically, but and we don't talk about him as if he's a bad quarterback, but we talk about him more as if he's, yeah, he's above average quarterback. He's, I don't know, somewhere in that like 12 to 15 range. Maybe he should work up to like the brim of that top 10 range, but we don't talk about him like that because you don't have the consistency. So if Derek Carr continues to look like he did last night, and there were times early in the game, as I mentioned, you know, Raiders were stuck on 10 points for a while. There were some accuracy issues. At one point, you had Darren Waller who had seven targets with one catch. I don't think when you have a, a Pro Bowl tight end in Darren Waller, that's necessarily because he's dropping a lot of passes. You know, you're a little inaccurate at times in that game, and he was. But overall, if Derek Carr looks like that every game, then yes, we are going to be talking about him as a consensus top 10 quarterback. We are going to be talking about him as maybe a top eight quarterback in the NFL. I'm just hesitant that that's going to continue. Now, as far as what this means for the Chiefs, yeah, like I said, I'm I'm not believing in the Broncos long term to, to be a contender or anything. Even though the Raiders win this game, they feel like a similar team to last year to me to where, yeah, they'll be feisty. They can beat the Chiefs. They showed that. But as far as contending for the division, like if you're going 12-5, and five, if you're the Chiefs, I don't think you have to worry about the Raiders. The Chargers, to me, are still going to be kind of that team that I look at as, yeah, they have the potential to be really good this year. And that's going to be the team you're most looking out for. But maybe it could be the Raiders. They have been slowly building to this, even though, like I said, I do feel like it is more of the same with them, that they're competitive enough, they have good enough players that they are going to avoid bottoming out, but... There's just not enough consistency. There's there's not quite enough there that's going to get them to that next level of being a legit Super Bowl contender. So I don't know that it means that much for the Chiefs. Obviously, it makes it even more important that you beat Cleveland in the opening game because then you'd be looking up at three other teams in your division that are 1-0, but still, it's at that point, you know, so early in the season, it's only one game. And really, this is the extra game, if you think about it like that, with 16 more to go. But honestly, just in regards to that game, like you could not have asked for a better first game if you were ESPN and for the Monday Night Football crowd. I mean, the game next week is Packers-Lions, which that's not going to get a lot of people excited, so you needed this. And you didn't even do the the Monday Night Football doubleheader, which you've normally done and I thought has been really cool, but you didn't really need it when you had this game, which kind of worked out for you if you're Monday Night Football. Uh, the best part about the game, though, I don't know if you caught this. They did a broadcast. They had it on ESPN2, and they also had it on, I believe, ESPN+, Plus, where it was a Eli Manning, Peyton Manning, I, I think it was called like the Manning broadcast, something like that. And basically, it was just watching the game, and then you had Eli and Peyton just kind of talking about it, giving analysis, going over it. It was fantastic to watch and I think you got to be careful with this because you know and and maybe this is coming from a, a biased person somebody who does play by play for a living obviously I hope that it doesn't turn into well every broadcast is now just this and play by play people are becoming extinct like there's no point of that because you think about some of the treasures you have guys like Kevin Harlan and whoever your favorite play by play guy you know Gus Johnson you wouldn't have that on the broadcast so I don't think this works for every broadcast, 
and maybe that is coming off a little biased, but I do really enjoy it in this situation. Now, again, we've seen this before in other leagues, like the NBA, or I guess I don't even know if this was an NBA decision. It's probably a, a TNT decision. TNT has kind of tried this out over the past couple of years where they've had, it's called like players only, where they just have former players who are analysts go call the game. And there's not really a play-by-play person, and they just kind of talk about it. But it's been really bad on the TNT broadcast. It just hasn't worked at all. But this really worked. And I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's simply because football is just a different animal, if it was just done better by ESPN, or if it's just about the people on it. And that's kind of where I'm leaning with this. Like, I think the Peyton Manning, Eli Manning dynamic, they're really good about giving analysis. They know their stuff. You know they have the pedigree and the awards and, and everything that makes you think, okay, they know what they're talking about. But they're also funny. And the fact that they're brothers, they're easy to kind of jab at each other and stuff, that it makes the game really interesting. Now, I'll be honest. If, if the Chiefs game is on there, I don't know what I want. Maybe I just want the classic broadcast more. But if it's if it's a non-game that the Chiefs are involved in and you want a little more entertainment, I would absolutely go with that. So I was really intrigued by it. And, and honestly, if that's on every week, that's probably going to be the choice of the broadcast for me over the regular broadcast. Maybe it's that I don't like the Monday Night Football crew as much. Maybe it was just really good. But like I said... I don't know what that means for the future of broadcast. I think it's definitely going to have an impact. Like I said, you're probably going to see less broadcast with a play-by-play person. It's just going to really impact things, and I'm interested to see where it goes from there. But as far as just the show itself, I thought that was really, really well done, and it kind of perfectly complemented a perfectly crazy game. Now, as far as the Chiefs, next week, or I guess this week now that we're looking ahead, you play the Baltimore Ravens. And that's very interesting now for them coming off a loss. Sometimes as a fan, like you almost root for the team you're going to be playing the next week to win that previous week. So they're not like going for revenge or they're not looking to bounce back, you know, especially when you're playing a good team. If you're playing a bad team, it doesn't really matter. But good teams tend to bounce back from losses. That's what makes them good teams. And it might light a little extra fire under your belly to to do so. Um that makes it a little tough for the Chiefs. But, you know, if you want to look at this from a, oh, contention for getting a better seed in the AFC, if you think the Ravens could win their division, which I, I think it's the Browns, then this would help you there. Um, but this is going to kind of run counterintuitive the couple things that the Ravens are going up against. On one hand, the Ravens are probably going to be playing out of desperation and out of anger. I mean, you look at teams who have started the season 0-2 and made it to the playoffs, they always flash that number after week two. And it's always a very low percentage of teams. I think on average, it's like one a year. So it does happen, but it's not anything to ride home about. And maybe with the extra game, maybe with the longer season and having an extra playoff team in there, those stats don't really mean as much anymore in 2021 as they did maybe 10 years ago. But they're going to be playing from a state of desperation. They're going to be playing from a state of anger after that game. And that's a positive for Baltimore. But you know what the negatives are? There might be more negatives than positives, which these are all things that should help the Chiefs, even though that one will make it tougher. On one hand, the Ravens are coming off a point where they probably should have won that game. You probably felt like we had this game in the books to where the Ravens were up three late in the game you gave up a couple big passes over the middle of the field and allowed that long field goal to the Raiders to even send it to overtime. You had the ball after getting that interception in overtime and you just fumbled on your own account. You fumbled earlier in the fourth quarter too that led to a Raiders touchdown to tie the game. I believe at that point it made it 17-17 or maybe then it was a different score. But you made mistakes and shot yourself in the foot. So you're kind of down on yourself that you felt like you had this one and just kind of lost the game for yourself. Here's what else is going against the Ravens. You played an extra, I mean, it wasn't the full 10 minutes of overtime, but you played a good chunk of the overtime period way well into the night. You're now on a short week, and so every minute got you even closer to the Chiefs game. You're already a day behind the Chiefs, and now 
you're going to be even more tired, more exhausted after that game. In addition to being on the short week, you have to travel on the road to Kansas City. And I, I don't know what the travel schedule is, but, you know, this isn't Baltimore just flying. Okay, they played at home. Now they'll fly to Kansas City. You flew from Baltimore all the way across the country to Las Vegas. I don't know if they fly all the way back to, to Baltimore. I feel like they would just fly to Kansas City at that point and mitigate some travel, but maybe not. I don't know. I don't know how that works. So you'd be flying all over. You'd have a short week, played extra time, so you might be a little more fatigued. And on top of it all, you're playing a Chiefs team who, for one, it's just a really good Chiefs team. And two, you haven't beat the Chiefs since Patrick Mahomes took over. And some of those games, I mean, the Ravens have been really close, so I don't want to make it sound like, oh, the Chiefs have dominated the Ravens because they haven't. Though last year's game was pretty dominant from the Chiefs in that I believe it was a Monday Night Football game in Baltimore, and they kind of smoked the Ravens, and that game got up early on them and, and just kind of held a sizable lead throughout. But the game in Kansas City where, you know, went to overtime and it took some crazy plays from Patrick Mahomes to win, like, it hasn't been the easiest thing in the world necessarily always for the Chiefs to win this game, but they have. And it does play into it mentally that we haven't been able to beat this guy. We haven't been able to get over the hump. And that comes into to play late in the game if you're giving up a potential comeback drive and it maybe plays in the back of your mind like, uh-oh, not this again. And then you add to all that that the Ravens are going up against. Tyron Matthew, Frank Clark, Andy Reid seems pretty positive or maybe optimistic would be the right word that both those guys are going to suit up for the game against the Ravens. All those things, not great for Baltimore that run counterintuitive to the fact that they might be playing with more desperation to try to avoid 0-2. Oh, and the other thing, their new defensive coordinator, who, I mean, they've always been a blitz-heavy team to begin with. It was to the max in that game against Baltimore or uh, against Las Vegas, where usually they're number one in blitzing in the NFL. Like, that was... No, we're we're number one on steroids. Like we're we're number one above number. Like it, it was insane how much they blitz. And if they take out that same strategy, good luck because you know what quarterback has eviscerated the blitz more than any quarterback in the NFL? Yeah, that would be one Patrick Mahomes. I think I saw the early line. I haven't seen what it was since uh, the game finished. Since the Ravens lost the game to the Raiders, so I'm going to try to pull that up now. But I saw as of yesterday morning before the Raiders game, that the Chiefs were two-and-a-half-point favorites. And again, playing a Sunday night football in front of a raucous Arrowhead crowd, Ravens coming off all that where, you know, you're down after a game you probably should have won, you played extra time in the overtime, you have to fly across country and back, basically. You're playing a team who's kind of owned you, so to speak. You haven't beat Patrick Mahomes. It's a short week. Guys are coming back for the Chiefs, who might be riding high after that comeback win over the Browns. Uh, again, for the Ravens, you do have the positives that, well, they're going to be playing from a state of desperation. They're going to have their running game, which the Chiefs struggled to stop against the Browns. But the two and a half points, I would gladly take that for the Chiefs. And it looks like it has moved a little bit. It's now Chiefs minus three and a half, which I still would probably take. But anyway, we'll talk more about that Chiefs-Ravens game coming up Later in the week here on Rock Chalk Sports Talk, I'm Derek Johnson on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Coming up next, we'll let you hear from some of what Lance Leipold had to say at his weekly press conference earlier today. And then Matt Tate will join us in about 20 minutes talking KU football. This is RCST on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Depend on it. You're listening to Rock Chalk Sports Talk. With Derek Johnson on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. About 20 till the top of the hour. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. KU opening as just a 14-point underdog to the Baylor Bears. I'm going to talk about this more either later in the show today or tomorrow, but the average score over the last decade plus of games is something around a 40 point Baylor victory over KU. This hasn't been a competitive series right now. The line sits around 17 points. Matt Tate of the Lawrence journal world, KU joins us on the show 
seeing that 17-point line, Matt, what are your initial reactions? Is this, I don't know, uh, uh, kind of a, a weird thing to look at? Is it maybe respect being given to, to KU? How do you put together that KU is only a 17-point underdog to a team that they've consistently lost by more than 17 points to? Well, you stole my answers, so I'll just sit here. No, um, I do think there's a little bit of respect thrown into that line. I mean, look, Kansas isn't exactly a, a juggernaut or even red hot or anything like that right now. But, um, you know, they they weren't that far off from from covering that game at Coastal Carolina against a really good Coastal Carolina team. Um, they weren't that far off from making it a – you know, a game in the teens um, rather than 27. I mean, uh, you avoid the block punt. That may help. Um, you, you, you catch a ball on fourth and three, and you go cut that thing down to a one-score game in the third quarter. Um, you know, you're not going to win the game probably from there because you'd still be playing from behind the eight ball, but, but you, you may have been able to hang around and keep it to that two-score margin by the end of the, the game. So, Anybody that watched the game, I think, realizes that. Um, and obviously Vegas realizes that because they watch everything. Um, anybody that just flipped on the, the sports center the next day and saw the final score or, or saw it on the ticker or read it in the paper or whatever, they look at that and go, well, same old KU. They gave up 50 points and they got their butts beat. And, you know, I get both sides of it. But I do think that that's the, the, the first part of that equation is probably at least partly why this line is set where it is. It's also a home game. And, uh, you know, Baylor's not exactly um, played uh, a nasty schedule. I mean, what is it, Texas State and Texas Southern? So, you know, we don't know fully what they are yet. They're still in the third game of the second year of a brand-new head coach, too. So um, all those things rolled into, rolled into one kind of create the, 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 the situation that, that you have a, a – lower than expected line maybe but um but but i do think part of it's respect and and uh and i and i do like i said i think coastal carolina is a really good team and and i thought ku showed some things down there they obviously didn't show it on the scoreboard enough to to be too encouraged by that but um they were competitive at times and and for good chunks of time and and i think as much as no one especially the fans but the players the coaches the administration too no one wants to hear or talk about moral victories. Um, I, I think they're more okay when you're in this situation, when, when you're here and you're at the beginning of a new era and, and you're trying to figure out your direction, you're trying to figure out your identity, you're trying to find your way. For Lance Leipold and this specific Kansas football team, if what they've determined through two weeks is that their way is that they just compete hard, that's a lot better than a lot of Kansas teams we've seen in the past. So, you know, there's, there's something to be said for that. So I'm working on a column right now that basically says that there's as many reasons to be encouraged right now as there are frustrated. And given the way the last decade has gone with this program, that that's kind of an early win. I mean, I I think that, um, you know, there's still plenty of holes and there's still plenty of, of uh, concerns and, and areas where they're weak and, and vulnerabilities and all those things. But they appear to have a pretty good quarterback. Um, they appear to have a coach who knows what he's doing. And, and uh, you know, they appear to have some decent receivers. And, and you know, you can kind of go from there. But, but, but this, is all, this is all fresh stuff. And, and so I don't think it's, uh, it's anything that you have to weigh too heavily because of what's happened in the past 11 seasons. You know, it's, it's, it's all new for Leipold and for these guys and for this team, so you take it with a grain of salt and you see what they are when they move into week three and week four and week five. And, and, and for me, that's, that's why this entire season will be worth paying attention to. Um, even if they keep losing and even if the scores keep looking like they did, I think it's still one of those things where, well, what do they look like? You know, and, and, and then you kind of determine what that means to you as you as you decide what you're going to do with this team next year and and into the future okay so you've seen two weeks of KU football and now you've seen this line that maybe Vegas thinks they can be competitive how many more games does KU win this year oh wow I was not prepared I I thought I answered (laughs) a long enough question that that you were not going to have time for the hard (laughs) one I I don't know man I mean I, I you know like 
I'll tell you this much. If you're looking at the Big 12 conference schedule, this week is probably one of your better chances. Well, okay, yeah, how about this? I'll simplify it for you. I mean, the original over-under was one and a half wins, so do they hit the over at this point? Uh, you know, I said two originally, so I'll say two. I haven't seen anything that that totally walks me off that line. I mean, if anything, the, the fact that Jason Bean is a legit quarterback and, and is a weapon and can make plays and, and – you know, can keep a team in games potentially. If anything, that's something I didn't know before that I that I sort of think we do know now. And you, you got to think he's only going to get better and and you know gain more confidence and improve as well. So I, I, I mean, I think I'll stick with two. I think, like I said, the, the, if you're looking at the conference slate, it's a nightmare. It always is. But this Baylor game is 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 one that that you might put on a very very short list of games that. You might say they could possibly be in. Uh, I'm not going to pick them, so let's let's go full disclosure there. I don't I don't believe they're going to win this week. But if you're trying to, you know, sift through it all and decide can they win another game, I think you could see this as put it in that possibility column. It's at home. Baylor hasn't played anybody. They're still in the early on in a, in a new tenure with their head coach. Um, obviously, the line's not outrageous. I mean, you know, it was set at 20. Seven at Coastal Carolina, and, and that's what it was, you know. So, if it's set at fourteen, and that's what it is, well, you pick here and there, and it's a lot easier to close the fourteen point gap than it is the, to to close the twenty seven point gap. So there, there's that, and, and then you have Duke the following week, um, and, and Duke lost at home. I think it was at home. Uh, to Charlotte in week one, um, and they look much better in week two and, and uh, you know, are one and one. And, and they've got some – I was just looking up the numbers, and, and they've – you know, Duke's in the middle of the pack in, in uh, total defense. Um, and, and I think they're a little better off on offense. I think they're somewhere around maybe 16th or something like that. So, um, I, you know, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm not saying they're going to win either one of those games, but it, it, it sets up pretty well for KU fans anyway to at least continue to pay attention for the next two weeks. And maybe you'll like what you see. Maybe they'll steal one of those games or at least be in it to the end, and, and then maybe something builds from there. But the bad news about having a front-loaded schedule with opportunities to win is that that means the back of your schedule is probably – full of opportunities to lose. So, you know, it, it, it's just still so early in the season to know really what anybody is. I mean, Baylor, Baylor won 66-7 to last week, right? And, and they could come in here and do the same thing. We, we don't know. I mean, it's just such a small sample size that, that, that we're, we're just – it's too hard to kind of determine that. But, you know, like I said, I said two at the beginning of the year. I'll stick with two. Um, you probably couldn't pay me to, uh, to, to pinpoint which one I think it is. I just have that feeling that – that this staff, these players, this culture that's being developed here is enough to find one more. And, and uh, I know that doesn't sound real exciting, but, uh, you know, that's a part of it. And that's a part of, of trying to rebuild this thing. And, and you got to go through that stuff before, before you can expect or hope for, for anything else. I mean, they're not going to be favored in any other game. We know that. So you, you got to start somewhere. We're talking with Matt Tate of the Lawrence Journal World and KUSports.com here on RCST. And yeah, it, it is a little unfortunate that the schedule doesn't line up that maybe had some more of these winnable games, so to speak, later in the season, because you would just think that the team is, I mean, every team gets better as the season goes on, barring catastrophic injury to your best players, but especially in a case like KU where the coaches took over so late. And the biggest sign of improvement for me will be what the offensive line looks like at the end of the season versus what it looks like now. How worrisome is that offensive line, not just in, in general as far as letting the offense move the ball goes, but just in terms of keeping a guy like Jason being healthy? Yeah, or good point. I mean, yeah, that's the most important part right now. You can't let him get beat up, and obviously that happened the other night a little bit. Um, but, but um, yeah, I think it's a major concern. Number one, your, your, your best player is your quarterback. And so if your line can't protect him, then that's scary and puts your team at, at a disadvantage. Um, number two, I think maybe going into the season, most people thought their best position was at running back. And if you can't get the run game going because of your O-line, then 
you're not able to feature what those guys can do and, and take advantage of that to help you out. Um, beyond that, you've got, you know, Colin Grunhard's uh, banged up already. I mean, he's the, your starting right guard, and, and Leipold said today that he's doubtful for this week. So um, in addition to having some concerns with how they're playing, now you're already having to plug guys in and fill some holes and, and, and go with backups and things like that. And so th- that adds a whole other element to just, uh, you know, what are the chances that this is going to be a unit that clicks? Uh, they may. And, and, you know, obviously they're working hard at it and, and all of that. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's very concerning. And, and I, I would say it's probably the number one concern right now for this, for this entire uh, program. Devin Neal got a bunch of playing time in game number two for KU against Coastal Carolina, especially compared to what he did in the first week of the season. What do you think of, I guess you can't really call it a debut, but it kind of felt like a debut with him playing more often of Devin Neal. Yeah, I, th- I think, you know, he's super talented and, he, and he's, and he's uh, you know, uh, uh, unflappable. I mean, the kid is so tough physically and mentally. Um, he's got such a positive attitude. You, you know, he could go for five yard losses on seven straight carries and he'd still bounce up smiling and, and expect something positive to happen on the next carry. I mean, that's just the type of kid he is. So, you know, you like to see him get some more opportunities because you feel like opportunities are going to lead to better days and better days are going to lead to big days and big days are going to lead to big things, both for him and for the program. So um, I think it's great. I think it's great that he is able to, to get out there and, and, and be a part of this. And I think he's the type of player that that continues win, lose, or draw to, to just get stronger and stronger and stronger as the season goes on. I mean, it's every, every time out, he's learning something new. Every, every next week, he's that much more experienced based on the week before and things like that. So um, really cool to see him get a touchdown, obviously. Um, you, you know, it's, it's uh, I mean, I'm, I'm a Lawrence guy and, and grew up here, and, and uh, he's obviously the same thing. And, and, and there's a lot of people here who are, who are Devin Neal fans because he's a Lawrence kid, even more so than because he's a KU player, you know. And, and um, I know a lot of people in the community that overlaps. But, but either way, it's, it's, uh, it's always cool to see, you know, kind of that local story and, and good things happen. And it was the same way with Joe Deneen and, and uh, Bryce Ternaden and, and, you know, there's been some guys. So um, pretty cool to see him get, get that first uh, touchdown and, and have something to feel good about. And, and, you know, I can tell you for sure, though, that, that he probably didn't feel that good about it. I'm sure he enjoyed it. I'm sure he'll always remember it. But I'm sure he'll also always remember that final score because he doesn't care. He's not here to you know, rack up numbers and just be for himself. I mean, he wants to win games. That's why he came here. He could have gone a lot of other places as a really, really um, highly rated recruit. And, and he chose Kansas and stuck with Kansas because he wants this place to uh, to be turned around in part because of what he's able to do. So, um, you know, I don't know that they had a, a big welcome home party with balloons and cake and all that just because he had a pretty a decent game. I mean, I think that maybe if they'd won, that would have happened, but uh, they didn't. And so, uh, you know, that's, that's uh, back to the drawing board for him and for the rest of the group and, and see what happens. But, yeah, I think he'll continue to look better as the year goes on. Before I let you go, boot camp started up for KU basketball. Who is the most likely candidate? There's always one that we hear from after the week. Hey, this guy – gained 15 pounds of muscle completely different body completely different player who is the most likely candidate for that player? man good question you gotta you gotta at least throw mitch lightfoot in the running because oh yeah he's, you know he's always good for a good photo pose right <laughs> i mean if if there's one guy out there who's going to uh ham it up a little bit and and make sure everybody sees you know that that's uh that that's probably uh lightfoot but I'll tell you what, man. I, I've, I, I, we haven't been. We don't. We don't always get to go. We've gone in the past, but um, don't get to go every year. And it doesn't look like we're going to get to go this year, which is a bummer. It's early, but I love going to that thing. I love watching it. It's a whole different experience um, than than just covering the game of basketball. There are no balls in there. They are not bouncing and shooting and dribbling. <laughs> I mean, it is. It is. Uh, it is. It is as close to uh, you know a true boot camp as you can get in sports, probably. So. Um, I, I, I've seen a little bit though, and again, not being present, but some photos and things like that. And, uh, Ochai looks like a monster, man. I mean, he just, you know, he's had some growths and gains in, in that, in that kind of setting that you're talking about in the past. And, and, uh, 
he, he kind of it, it looks like he might be that guy again this year. And you know, I, I've always said you can get too big. I mean, that's uh, you know, there, there is a danger in that, but. Um, but, but I don't know that that's the case with him because he's so fluid and so smooth and, and, uh, so athletic and, and, uh, it'll be really interesting to see if I'm right on that one, but I would put my money on Ochai. Um, I might put Jalen Wilson as a close second. Um, and then of course, see, you know, if we're, if we're doing uh win place or show, or if we're doing gold, silver and bronze, then I'd have to throw Lightfoot in there too, just because how do you bet against that guy in that category? <laughs> Is Matt Tate. The Lawrence Journal World, KUSports.com. Matt, thank you so much for the time and talk to you next week. All right, Derek. Thanks, man. Have a great week. All right, that's Matt Tate of the Lawrence Journal World, KUSports.com. Joins us on a Tuesday here on Rock Chalk Sports Talk. This is FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Depend on it. Kevin Flaherty of 24-7 Sports will talk Big 12 football and Big 12 expansion with us in about 15 minutes. From right now, this is Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. But before we get into any of that, first we've got to get to our college football whip around. Oregon and Georgia, both with the biggest wins so far of the college football season. Oregon winning at Ohio State. Georgia beating Clemson on a neutral field. For Oregon, this might just be, hey, well, you wanted Ohio State, so it's all similar, but... It does feel a little similar in that standpoint to, I think, 2017 when Oklahoma and Baker Mayfield went on the road into Columbus, beat Ohio State, and that was kind of the coming out party for that Oklahoma team who eventually made the playoff out of a conference that doesn't always get into the playoff, cough, cough, Oregon with the Pac-12, and that kind of springboarded them. They ended up losing in the semifinals in a year that there were two SEC teams. And guess what? Probably going to be two SEC teams this year because... Oregon and Georgia both probably have a mulligan now. For Oregon, they can lose that random Pac-12 game, which we know they will. It's the Pac-12, but now they can overcome it because if they're sitting there 12-1, and winners of the Pac-12, and Ohio State is 12-1, and winners of the Big Ten, you're obviously taking Oregon in that situation. Georgia has a mulligan because you beat Clemson. If you're sitting there at 12-0 and and you lose in the conference title game to Alabama and you're 12-1, and Clemson's 12-1, and but you beat Clemson. Georgia is going to go to the college football playoff. And then you're going to get two SEC teams with Alabama and Georgia after they just played for the conference title in the game. So Oregon and Georgia probably have a mulligan now based on those big early season wins. And it's interesting because it's the ultimate dichotomy of making those tough games early in the season. On one hand, you could say, well, if we win the game now, we're in this position like those schools where we do have a mulligan. The flip side to that, if you lose, like if you're Ohio State, you're sitting there going, oh no, we need Oregon to lose like two or three times now so that the head-to-head result doesn't even apply in a tiebreaker if we're there for one of the final spots with them. Either that or we just need Oregon to be like the the two or the three seeds that we can get in as the three or the four seed or something. It's it's kind of tough to, to do, but once we get to the 12-team playoff, whenever that does or whenever we do see expansion for the playoff, these games are going to be, I think, more often because you won't have that risk to have. It's like if if we lose the game before Ohio State, okay, we'll still make the 12-team playoff. We just won't maybe get a bye week now. We just won't maybe get a home game in the first round or as, as good of a seed. But right now, it has huge implications. Also, in regards to Georgia, by the transitive property, Georgia beat UAB, just beat the brakes off of them, this past weekend. UAB beat Jacksonville State in week one, and Jacksonville State beat Florida State. So Georgia beat UAB and, and by over 50 points. And if you add up all the scores of this team beating that team, by the transitive property, Georgia is 83 points better than Florida State. So congratulations to the Bulldogs on their biggest win of the season over the Seminoles. I'm more mad than I should be over this past weekend's result of Texas A&M escaping Colorado and it's not really about anything other than the fact that I don't think Texas A&M is very good and now their quarterback Haynes King is going to be out for quite some time I'll say this like I don't think Texas A&M is bad they're a top 25 team when you look at the defense like they do have one of the best defenses in the country and they do have some awesome skill players like a tight end Weidermeyer or an Anais Smith on the outside who's also returning kicks for them and Spiller their running back those are 
those are really good skill players for AM. But the offensive line has, you know, you lost some key players from last year, even though you have some guys you look at back on that line as former four and five star recruits, and you're going to probably have some high draft picks there. It just hasn't looked good so far, and the quarterback situation hasn't looked good either. And you barely beat Colorado, who is maybe a bowl team out of the Pac 12. I mean, they're going to be around four, five, six wins this season. That's not a great Colorado team. And you had to scave by score late touchdown to win that game. My biggest issue with it is that Texas A&M, yes, they did drop a few spots just because Oregon and um, oh, who was the other team? Iowa, who won a top 10 matchup, kind of jumped over them for getting big wins. But Outside of that, Texas A&M didn't really drop much, despite the fact they haven't really looked good this season. Even the first game against Kent State, that was a game into the third quarter until they finally pulled away. So they haven't looked that good this season, and if there were no preseason poll and they were not tied down to where their initial preseason ranking would be, like I said, they'd be a top 25 team, but they'd probably be closer to 25 than they would be to number one. And right now, they're closer to number one than they are to number 25 closer to number one than they are to number 20. So my big beef here is that despite the fact that they should have lost that game to Colorado, despite the fact that they have not looked like a top 10 team so far, and they still are ranked that, what's going to happen is because they're not as good as the ranking, some team in the SEC is going to beat them. And because Texas A&M is going to be a top 10 team, that SEC team who beat them is going to get credit for beating a top 10 team, which is going to vault that SEC team into a top 15, top 10 ranking. And because of that, Texas A&M might not end up being good after that, but they'll drop after that. They'll get credit for that win at the time, which then means when that next SEC team, after they get boosted by that win, loses to a Georgia or Alabama or Florida, they're going to get boosted. It's just a never-ending cycle. And, you know, A&M and Notre Dame, very much not impressive to start the season for the two teams who were in that competition the most for the number four spot at the end of last season, not impressed with either one and not happy with how that SEC feast cycle is going to work with Texas A&M. C.J. Stroud for Ohio State. If you look at the stats, you're like, holy cow, what do they have in this freshman? He had a 484-yard passing game, three touchdowns, no picks. I'll tell you what, I don't know that there could be a more, I don't even, more might not be the right word, a least impressive 484-yard passing three touchdown game because if you watch that game it felt like third down after third down it was just an inaccurate football from CJ Stroud and when you see the talent that is around him with the offensive line the running game I mean they have three dudes at receiver Chris Olave is going to be a first round pick Garrett Wilson might be a first round pick his dudes on the outside that you know you throw a little three yard crossing route and it turns into a 30 yard gain and a touchdown it helps pad those stats but Honestly, I was not really impressed with C.J. Stroud. Now, he did, you know, he wasn't the worst quarterback in the world. He was still solid, and he's just a freshman. He'll get better. But that was wild because if you just look at the box score, you'd say, holy cow, this guy's the next Justin Fields. I'm here to tell you, no, very much not so. Uh, week two was also a slap to the face of the teams that have struggled and are trying to gain ground back to what they were as a program, the schools that are we back schools maybe is the good way of putting this. USC, are they back? No. They lost by 14 at home to Stanford, a Stanford team that just got their butt kicked by Kansas State at AT&T Stadium in week one. Now, maybe that means Kansas State is really good. I've been higher on the fact that I think Kansas State is probably closer to a seven or eight win football team, although now with the Skylar Thompson injury, even though it might only be a few weeks instead of season ending, which that's good. That was unfortunate when you have a, what, fifth, sixth year returning quarterback and that's what ends up happening, but um, not great for USC. And now, because of that, Clay Helton got canned, which is going to obviously lead to a big ripple in the college football world with who takes that job potentially. Now, if some other college coach, if a James Franklin or a Matt Campbell takes that job, now it all of a sudden creates a ripple effect of, okay, well, this school, uh, James Franklin's going there. Now who's Penn State going to hire? Now, who's the other school who Penn State hired from going to hire? Now, who are they? And, and so forth. It's going to create a big chain. I think from a Big 12 perspective and, and a KU perspective, you're kind of rooting for Matt Campbell to go to 
USC and, and hope that, okay, well, maybe that's a chance for Iowa State to fall back off to what they were before Matt Campbell got there, and maybe that's a chance for, okay, now Kansas can rise above some program in the Big 12. But the latest news is that Eric Bieniemy, the Chiefs offensive coordinator, is getting interest from the job, and that would be a job that he would actually have interest in taking from the college game. He only has a handful that he'd be interested in going to college for. If you remember, he almost went to Colorado, which I believe that's his alma mater, so that makes sense. That'd be very interesting with him going over to USC, and he's probably at a point where the past two years going, you know what, I thought I was going to get a job two years ago. I didn't. I thought for sure I'd get a job last year. I still didn't. Maybe I have to go to the college game. And if you're going to the college game, USC is not the worst job in the world for that to happen with. But obviously, everybody's going to be predicting. Urban Meyer is going to, you know, have some health scare, step away from Jacksonville, pull a Bobby Petrino, and he'll be at USC next year. They'll find a way to go 12-1 and with him, and they'll make the college football playoff. We know that's what's going to happen. Uh, more down the list, though, of the Are We Back teams, Texas got murked by Arkansas. Now they're changing quarterbacks from Hudson Card, who struggled a little bit, but he wasn't, I don't know. I don't think it was like all his fault, uh, but they're changing from him to Casey Thompson. I'm sure that quarterback fix will fix everything for the Texas program. So good luck there. Tennessee lost at home to Pittsburgh. So Tennessee still not back yet. And Florida State definitely still not back yet. That was the worst of all. Florida State lost to Jacksonville State. And if you haven't seen this clip yet, Please go search for it. Florida State was up 17-13, to 13, or maybe it was 16-13. I, I don't know. They were up by a score with seconds left. And Jacksonville State had the ball at their own 30, 40-yard line, and they chuck it downfield. It wasn't even a Hail Mary. It wasn't even, hey, I'm going to scramble around, just chuck it up, and I'm going to hope you win a jump ball. It was just a straight up, I'm going to drop back five steps, throw it downfield. My guy's going on a vertical route, just one guy going downfield. And he burned by the corner. They weren't apparently playing prevent defense, either that or they just were doing the worst job ever at it. And he caught it behind the corner. There was no safety behind him. And he broke like two tackles. Nobody even like seemed like they were actually trying to tackle him. It seemed like players were just jogging toward him. Like they didn't really care. Embarrassing for Florida State. I thought Mike Norvell was going to work out as a hire after seeing that. I mean, they had a bad last year. At Florida State, after seeing that, that ain't going to work. And it is wild how removed we are from, what, eight years ago when Florida State won a national championship? Jameis Winston won Heisman seven years ago from them making a college football playoff. Florida State, not back. Nebraska, though, maybe back? Question mark. Beat Lance Leipold's former squad, Buffalo, 28-3. to But they play Oklahoma this week, so probably about to be very much not back after that 11 a.m. kickoff, which they're very unhappy about. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Kevin Flaherty, 24-7 Sports, joins us next. Talk a little Big 12 football. Kevin Flaherty of 24-7 Sports joins us now on Rock Chalk Sports Talk, as he does on Tuesdays here to talk a little Big 12 football. Before we get into the Big 12 football and the realignment stuff, the USC job is now open. Where does that rank among college football jobs? I know, you know, Alabama and Texas and USC, I'd imagine Oklahoma, those would be ones that you'd throw out there. Is it a top five job and? Uh, who's going to take it? Is it Urban Meyer? Do we get the Steve Sarkeesian uh, reunion after he just got blasted by Arkansas? Who, who's taking it? You know, I, I don't know that it's quite top five because I, I think there are some others that, you know, can compete and or, you know, pass uh, USC from a, from a money and resources standpoint. You know, not that, not that it's bad there or anything like that, but I think you're probably talking multiple SEC jobs at this point, Alabama, probably Florida. Maybe you'd even throw Georgia in there. Shoot, if you want to make a lot of money as a head coach, you know, without even winning your division, Jimbo Fisher is <laughs> making a killing at, at Texas A&M. And then you bring in, you know, the Texases, the Oklahomas, the Ohio States. It, it's a great job. You know, I, I'm not trying to downplay that uh, at all. I, I do think that it's probably, you know, right in that top 10 range or, or somewhere around in there. I don't think it's quite top five, but... You know, it, it'll be really interesting in that I think there's going to be sort of this smorgasbord of, of candidates for it. You know, Adam Schefter 
just reported, I think, about an hour ago that there are some NFL types who feel like Eric Bieniemy, you know, from the Chiefs is going to be a legitimate candidate there, and that's sort of one of the jobs from a college standpoint that he's had circled. I think you look at James Franklin was a was a candidate last time it came up. You know, he's at Penn State. There are some people that you know certainly seem like they don't appreciate. James Franklin at Penn State, despite the job he's done there and and possibly going out and avoiding, you know, having to uh, having to go through Ohio State on a year to year basis in your division probably doesn't seem like that bad of a deal. The the other guy that, that is very interesting to me, Derek, there is a guy that, that certainly got his his flowers this weekend, and that's Mario Cristobal. You know, you have a guy who's already succeeding in your conference. He's, you know, he brings a level of toughness. They really develop their offensive line uh, well at, at Oregon. And I think when you look at the way that they're recruiting in Southern California right now at Oregon, I think he's somebody that at the very least you uh, you call him, get his thoughts about the job before you, you maybe move on to some other guys. And so I think those are some of the names that, that could be interesting there. That would be such a gut punch to Oregon if that sure. happened. I would imagine Phil Knight, if he finds out that USC is calling Mario Cristobal, he is just signing over a blank check at that point to try to avoid that from happening. We're talking with Kevin Flaherty here on Rock Chalk Sports Talk. So four teams have been added to the Big 12, officially announced on Friday, UCF, Houston, Cincinnati, and BYU. How do you like the fit of these four and what they bring to the conference? You know, it, it is a little interesting, you know, expanding further west because uh, I think, you know, UCF, I heard some people saying when that was happening geographically, it didn't make sense. It does give you another, you know, East Coast team to to kind of pair with West Virginia, you've already stretched in that direction. So that's, that's not as big of a deal. Houston, obviously, you know, very few schools made sense like Houston made sense. Uh, but the geographic footprint of this conference is now just monstrous. And so when you look at that, when you look at, you know, BYU, the following that that, that program has and everything, I, I really do think, there's a chance that, that some schools like those, I think Cincinnati's a cultural fit. You know, there's a chance that they fit in pretty well. Uh, I think from a basketball standpoint, you're arguably coming out, you know, right sort of where you were before. You know, maybe you lose a little bit, maybe you don't. Obviously, Houston was a, was a Final Four school. Uh, the, this past year, but from a football standpoint, you're going to have a, a drop off, I think, in terms of revenue, in terms of, you know, cachet and different things like that. Well, hold on trying, there. Gene Taylor. Uh, Gene Taylor. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah uh, what, uh, what you're referencing is Kansas State's athletic director saying that, uh, that revenues would not drop uh, with Texas and Oklahoma, which. Basically, uh, I think is as you would uh, agree, Derek runs counter to basically <laughs> everybody who's ever taken a look at this at all. You know, I, I mean, it, and it's not, you know, maybe if you were feeling extremely positive, you would say, well, hey, the the drop off probably isn't going to be, you know, life threatening or isn't going to be the the type of drop that's that's going to make people not want to be in the Big 12 at this point, if you're on the positive side. But to just say that, hey, things aren't going to change without the brands of the University of Texas and Oklahoma, I think is a, is a pretty Pollyanna you know, way to look at it. Is there a chance that, you know, with the new conference and however it's organized, breeds a consistent power, so to speak? Like, like I think back to the old Big East in the early 2000s when you had Miami running it, and I don't know. You can obviously correlate. Well, maybe they just haven't been as good or haven't had the right coaching guy. But I think also in, in certain circumstances, being in the right conference for the right path sometimes can help. Like the way that Nebraska dominated the Big Eight but is struggling now or the way that, like I said, with Miami, you've seen certain schools be able to maybe dominate a conference. But then when things change for whatever reason, whether it's a recruiting footprint that changes or uh, just more teams or maybe not being the biggest fish in a smaller pond anymore, whatever it is. We've seen that before. So do you think there's a chance that 
one or two schools could emerge and become that consistent power where we look back 10 years from now and go, man, yeah, like Oklahoma State, they were always consistently good in the Big 12, but now in the new Big 12 without Oklahoma and Texas, they're going an 11-1 every year. You know, it's. Uh, I'm glad you asked the question, actually, because I think that it, it's something where the Big 12, as of day one of the new conference, when you when you look at the new teams, I think you're looking at basically a resetting of the starting line. Like the Big 12 has been around for a while. If you want to consider it, you know, like a one mile run or, or something like that on a, on a track. You know, schools like Oklahoma, they're further ahead of the track right now than what Iowa State is, than what Kansas is, what Kansas State is, et cetera. I think with the with the changes that you're making, you know, Texas obviously from a financial standpoint, but then two, Oklahoma from just a sheer football success standpoint, it, it's almost like you're blowing the whistle calling a false start and having everybody return to the starting line to run again. And so I do think that it's wide open to start off and we don't necessarily know who that power program is going to be. And, you know, I I wrote an article a few years back talking to Tom Herman in his first year at Houston. And he was telling me that one of the things that he did when he got there was he showed them the video of that 30 for 30 on the U at Miami. And basically his feeling was, and yes, some of this is undoubtedly coach speak. If Houston got to a point where they were keeping the top players at home, much the way that Miami eventually got where they started keeping South Florida kids home, as opposed to seeing those guys go to Florida or Florida state or, or even out of state, then he felt like Houston could emerge as a legitimate national title type power. And, you know, if you want to read that, I I think it's still up on 24 seven sports, you know, try to avoid my awful writing, but there's some interesting stuff there where he talks about what he thinks Houston's potential is. And, And I, I bring that up too, because I think that there are other pathways for the new schools to get to that point as well. I, I think UCF, all of a sudden, with it having that power conference designation, UCF's been doing pretty well without it. And they've been doing really well when you look at their transfers. Derek, I encourage you to look at their roster at the wide receiver position. It looks like a who's who. I mean, they've got transfers from Oklahoma, Notre Dame, Tennessee, and that's all at one position. And so you look at maybe them having the ability to compete with Florida State or Miami or Florida on the odd kid now that there's not a significant step down in competition, maybe UCF has that kind of potential. Cincinnati was a top 10 team last year and has that potential. BYU has some really interesting things working in its favor as well when you look at the the fan support that they have and also the fact that things are a little bit different there with the mission trips and and the thing, the reasons that you're playing a lot of times, not necessarily 18 to 21 year olds, like in a lot of schools, but a lot of times you're playing older players who are 22 to 24 and maybe have some physical advantages there. And then you look into the big 12. I don't know that there's somebody in that big 12 mix that jumps out that makes you say, okay, this is, this is the team. They're definitely going to take the baton from here. And that makes this, you know, sort of those first few years of the new conference so fascinating to watch because there is no head start really. If somebody like, you know, even a, a Kansas were to put themselves into a position where they have a strong first couple of years there, you could look at themselves setting themselves up for, you know, what could be a, a strong future over the next several years from that point because it's basically a restarting of the race. How much does having divisions help kind of fester teams who have these breakout seasons sometimes? Because when I think of the Orange Bowl, it's, you know, that Kansas team was obviously very good. So I don't want to make this sound like, oh, it was only because they were in the North. But obviously being in the Northern Division, which Kansas was, is is more helpful if you do tend to break out because you don't have Texas and Oklahoma and Texas A&M and so far down the list and Oklahoma State on your schedule, although they did have, you know, the Oklahoma State and Texas A&M that year. Um, but you don't necessarily get all those. 
Now, with the four schools being added in, they're obviously still above what Kansas is as a football program right now. So how much does being able to get to a point where you're going to have divisions now, and I would assume you're going to be playing less conference games now, maybe have an extra non-con game, how much does that help a school like Kansas, or does it not really matter? The non-conference game is really big because potentially you could schedule another win there. And I'm not saying you have to schedule two FCS schools or whatever, but you can really you have some some hand, I guess you would say, in terms of how you want to enter conference season and the types of opponents that you want to play and things of that nature. I do think a lot of times with divisions, there's a tendency to look at how a division is in a given year and not look at the fact that a lot of times those things can tend to be a little bit circular, right? Because we think about that 2007 team in particular, and that's the example that everybody uses and says, well, if they were in the South that year, maybe things would have been a little bit different. I don't know that they would have because Oklahoma was probably better than Kansas that year. They were better than Missouri, who who beat Kansas. But after that, Texas really struggled and, and lost to some teams that Kansas beat. And, and you go down through that group, and it, it wasn't – there weren't necessarily – the teams that Kansas missed, for the most part, weren't necessarily teams that, that would have done more damage. And what I'll say to the other part is, look at where the Big 12 was 10 years before that. You know, you had Colorado that, you know, was was really strong in sort of the late, uh, the early 2000s or, or whatever. You had Kansas State, you know, was at, you know, arguably its peak around that point. You had Nebraska. You know, it, it's not putting too fine a point on it to say that the North was the superior division and it was tough to win in the North at that point. And so I do think these things can tend to be a little bit cyclical, but – I, but with divisions and things of that nature, you also tend to know who you're competing against year in and year out. And a lot of times, I think that that leads to almost, you know, North teams tended to look like other North teams and South teams like other South teams. And so I will be interested to see how the divisions play out. Kansas is just a 17-point underdog right now. It opened at 145 against the Baylor Bears. Now, Baylor just dominated Texas Southern last week, week before, had a bit of a close one with Texas State. So what is Kansas working with this week against Baylor, and how feasible do you think them covering that 17-point spread is? I think it's feasible. I think the thing that you look for in this Kansas program is improvement because you figured heading into the season, and I think even the most optimistic people would have looked at the team, looked at them bringing in new coaches, new system, and doing all of that after spring practice. It wasn't like people were expecting Kansas to compete for titles right away. And so what you look for is is that incremental improvement, and that's one of the things that I think Lance Leipold has really preached all along, is to be better tomorrow than you are today. And so when you look at where Kansas was from week one to week two, I think the Kansas team that lost to Coastal Carolina likely would have beaten South Dakota by a a much more solid margin. The offensive line was significantly better. In a lot of cases, the offense in general was better. And in a lot of cases, there were even other plays out there that maybe could have been big plays where they were maybe one missed blocker or one missed read or whatever else away from a big play. And so I think if Kansas continues on its growth curve, yeah, it, it can cover that margin. I think that's the important thing, too, when you look at this team over the course of a full season. Yes, you want to win. Yes, you don't go into any game saying, you know what, we just like to, to look good in our loss today. But the flip side of that is is you really need, at this point in your program, to compete against yourself and to continue to get better. And if Kansas makes the sort of growth jump from week two to week three that it made from week one to week two, then not only are, are things going to continue to, to improve it and maybe look a little bit better, but that does maybe put them in a spot to cover something like 17 against Baylor, especially if the defense tunes a few things up. Talking with Kevin Flaherty of 24-7 Sports. Before we let you go, 
Uh, elsewhere in the Big 12, you had Texas getting smoked by Arkansas, Iowa State losing to Iowa, Oklahoma State we had another close game against Tulsa this time, who lost to an FCS team in Week 1. Um, who am I missing? The battle for third. Uh, TCU beat Cal in a close game, and then Kansas State barely beat an FCS team, and Skyler Thompson got hurt, but... Stanford, the team they beat in week one, dominated USC. So where do things sit for you in terms of viewing who is the next team with Oklahoma in the Big 12 right now? You know, I, I think it might still be Texas as much as it pains me to say that after that Arkansas <laughs> game because Texas just flat got big boyed in that game. There's, there's no excuse you can make. You can't look at it and say, well, if this went a little bit different, no. I mean, Arkansas ran for about 8 billion yards you know, shut down Texas's rushing attack and was just generally better, more aggressive, more fierce, everything else. I am interested to see how the transition goes uh, to to a new quarterback with Texas. I thought that uh, I thought they looked a little bit better on offense late in that game, a little bit more calm, and so maybe that will help them going forward. TCU. It's really tough to get a read on, but I think TCU could also be in that discussion. Oklahoma State, the offense just hasn't been there to the point that you would have not just hoped, but even expected, Derek, for for what they were. And then while Iowa State, you know, the, the funny thing is, I know, Derek, we talk basketball quite a bit of the year, obviously, and there are those shot quality charts where they basically project after a game and say, okay, based on the shots and the shot quality taken, this team should win, you know, this much of the time. Uh, I saw that Iowa State technically should have beaten Iowa, I think was like a 54% win percentage based on the events of of what (laughs) happened in that game. But you can't, you can't look at that stuff. And and so uh, I think Iowa State's still a good team, I do think that when they match up against a Texas or, or somebody like that or, or even TCU, if TCU can get the offense going a little bit more around Zach Evans, I think I would have Iowa State sort of maybe just a half step back from those guys, but certainly in that discussion. He is Kevin Flaherty. You can check out all his work at 24-7 Sports, including a piece that I'm going to dig into tonight on Houston kind of being a sleeping giant. (laughs) Kevin, thank you so much for the time as always, man. All right. Thanks a lot, Derek. All right. That's Kevin Flaherty joining us here on Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Depend on it.